I was assigned this very narrow topic of God and culture. Uh, it's actually, it is a very broad topic, if you didn't catch that joke there. Uh, a very broad topic as we continue in this portion of our, our core value of worship, which says God alone rules my world, so I'll point to him in everything that I do. How does a Christian live, relate, and reach its culture? And so that's hopefully what we get to talk about tonight. But there are, there are well, before we do that, let me pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that you are the creator of all peoples. No one is an accident. No one is here by chance. You have a design for everything. And we acknowledge that tonight, that you are the creator of all things. And you love us. You created us in your image to be in relationship with you and with each other. So bless us tonight, God. I pray that you would encourage us through your word, help us to think how we can correctly live in culture, and to um, be a shining light for you in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. But so many cultures exist today, don't they? I'm even just thinking about my neighborhood culture. Uh, I live with, surrounded by people who really care a lot about their yards, and they kind of have this way of the culture that I live in that they believe that I should have the same feelings. And I do, uh, but they come and help remind me and talk to me about these things. In fact, they've all told me at one point or another which lawn service they use not saying that I should use that one in particular, but they all, in their roundabout kind of way, say, yeah, I just did this the other day. Pretty cheap, pretty cheap. Maybe you should. That's just what I do. <laughs> but there are so many cultures that exist. Urban culture, suburban, rural. I always have a hard time saying that one. Rural, Midwest culture, South, West, and East Coast. Soccer moms, housewives, blue-collar culture, white-collar, military culture, factory culture, corporate culture, gun culture, drug culture, country club culture, pub culture, youth culture, the home school culture, the public school culture, the Christian school culture, the sports culture, the beard culture. Um, that's larger than you might think. The political realm culture. The hipster culture, which is connected to the beard culture. <laughs> the intellectual culture, the bike culture, and the CrossFit culture. Each culture has its own set of values, dress, and behaviors. And each talks about and judges the other cultures based off of theirs. Our responsibility as human beings created in the image of God is to fill, work, and keep the earth. As image bearers, we were made to create culture. So what is culture? Let's just give a, a working definition here. Culture is the beliefs, behaviors, and characteristics of a particular social, ethnic, or age group. So in our talk tonight, we want to talk about how do we relate to God, the creator of all cultures, and live for him in the midst of the culture that we are in. 
Now, what I've mentioned already with that myriad of different cultures that exist, those are actually all subcultures. And we all live in a subculture, but also within a greater culture, which would be kind of the whole of man. From a biblical perspective, there are two cultures that exist. Augustine, the church father, calls them two cities. He says one is the city of God. That is the culture that knows Christ and lives within the church. And the world, its systems, and its values he refers to as the city of man. The Apostle Paul, referring to the two cultures in our day and age, much like Augustine, actually Augustine much like Paul, that we have two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the sun. And so tonight I want to talk about, just give you a basic outline here of us as kingdom citizens, how do we live within the greater culture? And then how do we live within the subculture, and I particularly want to address the subculture of the church, and then what is the overarching pursuit of culture, of all cultures, what are they all pursuing, what is their main objective? Now, if you've noticed, and maybe you haven't, but I've been using the phrase living in culture, and that's for a specific purpose, because we want to get this idea away from us that somehow we as Christians are unaffected by culture. Greg Thornberry, Dr. Greg Thornberry says this, let us as Christians to stop saying we want to engage culture as if Christians are above it or it is something that is out there. Instead, let's acknowledge that we are swimming in it. Our kids are swimming in it. We are a, we are a part of this culture that we live in. No matter what we do or try to pull away from us, some are more involved in it than others, but all of us to one degree or another are a part of this culture. And that's the way that the Bible really portrays it. It talks about us, actually, the, the, the biblical way is for us to not pull away from culture, but to be involved in it. Philippians 2 verse 5 says, you, that is you, speaking to the people, the church in Philippi, you may be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. So Paul speaking there says you live within this generation and you shine as a light within it. Jesus' desire, too, was not for the church to be pulled out of the culture, but that they would live within it as well. As Jesus says in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus' desire is not that we would pull away, but that we would actively be living within the world. And it's not wrong for us. This doesn't mean that we only live in the culture or engage it so that we can reach people but that it's okay for us to enjoy certain cultures that we are a part of 
And while we are living and going about our normal lives, we're looking for opportunities to engage people in the culture that we are in. And so I want to propose to us tonight, these are not my own, but from the Radical Reformation, three components of living in this world as a Christian. Three components that we need in this world to live as a healthy Christian and as a healthy church. And here's the first one, the gospel. We need the gospel. Paul says the gospel is of first importance. That I received to Christ from Christ, which I give to you, that Christ died according to the scriptures for sins. He was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. Paul says this is what's most important. And this is what it talks about when God says loving the Lord. This is the first aspect of a Christian, a healthy believer, and a healthy church is that they never lose sight of the gospel. In your own life, you're constantly being reminded of the gospel in your day-to-day. And as a, as a church, we're constantly speaking of, calling people to, and sharing the gospel. Secondly is the culture. This is loving our neighbor. That is that we want to be reaching, engaging, having relationships with those that are outside of Christ. And then thirdly, we want to love the church, which is loving our brothers and our sisters. So the gospel plus culture plus the church equals a healthy believer. We don't want to divorce any of these things from the other. We want to have all three of these things working out in our lives. So Acts chapter 17, Paul here believes, I, model, I believe he models this quite well, of reaching the culture, and he was obviously a church man, loved the church, starting churches, but also proclaiming the gospel and putting that in the forefront. So as we look at Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, the former home of Socrates, Plato, Alexander the Great, and many others. It had its heyday several years before this, but still very much the center of culture. And Paul is on his missionary journey, and he's waiting for the other guys to catch up to him. And he's hanging out there in, in um, where is he? That's right, in Athens. I was basically, where did, where did he go again? Was it Corinth? He's hanging out in Athens And this is what it says about him in in verse 16. Now Paul was waiting for them at Athens, and his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. I don't believe you have a hand down in front of you, but if you did, this would be the first one under the greater culture, is that we as Christians need to steady and be burdened for our culture. Be steady, steady and be burdened for our culture. It says that Paul, Paul's heart was stirred because he saw all the idols that were within that city. It's actually been said that you have a better chance of first seeing a statue than ever before seeing a man in the city of Athens. That's how many there were. The city was, was full of them. And full of philosophers that taught uh, many different things within the city of Athens. So he's speaking to a group called the Epicureans. And what they believed that the universe was random. It was unpredictable. And really the purpose of life was to pursue pleasure. Not so much in the awful sense that we might think of, although some of them did. But trying to avoid hardship. 
removing trials from your life as much as possible. Because when you die, it's over. So do your best now in this life to live the good life. He's also speaking to the Stoics, who are pretty much the exact opposite, and they believe that the universe is disciplined and it's ordered. And their point was actually to be able to endure suffering in this life. So much so that when they endured suffering, they even lost a spouse, it wouldn't affect them emotionally. And they would say things like, life goes on. Because they knew that greater was coming, was uh, their reward, what they would return and be reconnected to God after they died. Everyone in Athens wor worshipped some sort of God, but they had never heard of Jesus. Now, Athens, like our culture, as Leith Anderson tells us, the Roman Empire as a whole was one of tolerance. So Rome came in, pretty much conquers everybody, right? And so they knew that all these conquered nations would now be living together under Roman rule, and they were to get along. So they promoted tolerance. And so their issue was then people who tried to come against that tolerance and try to break it up and break up the peace. So the monotheism of the Jews and now the teaching of Paul of this one God was intriguing to them. And they did not like it because of this culture that was promoting tolerance. So as we see, and we'll go on here, that the culture was not all that different from ours today promoting of tolerance, and whatever you want to believe is fine. Just don't try to push that belief, uh, your beliefs, on anyone else. Let's look at 18 to 20. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was, he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we now know what this teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they thought Paul was a babbler, but they wanted to give him a chance to speak. And here's the second part of living in our culture, and this is pretty simple. It's just the idea of be interesting. One of the best things that you can do in living in, your, in the world that we live in is to try your best to be an interesting person. They thought, uh, what's going on here? We don't know what he's saying. It sounds like foolishness, but it sounds intriguing. Let's give Paul the opportunity to speak. Now, sometimes I think we can get so involved in our subculture of Christianity that we start talking in such ways that the world just doesn't understand. And I could be guilty, number one, of this. I mean, I live in church culture. I'm a youth pastor, okay? This, that's where I'm, I live. But some of us need to be really careful that we still become, we seem interesting to people who don't know Christ so that they don't write us off right away. Right? We're the king of the Jesus juke. If you know what that is, that is where someone just mentions something normal and then we, we juke them with something really spiritual, right? Like a guy comes up to you and says, hey man, I'm thirsty. You say, well, that's neat. I can give you living water, right? And it's like, dude, what are you talking about? Listen, only Jesus can do those things, all right? His followers aren't very good at that. Or someone comes up to you and asks for a light. 
you say, I don't, can't give you light, but I can give you the light of the world. It's like, what? Right? You know, we just had this weird way of talking that people are like, what? I, you don't even make sense to me. Uh, I, I love to listen to NPR. I know, don't judge me. Um, but one of, the, one of the podcasts that I really enjoyed, and many of you probably do as well, is the podcast Serial. Any Serial fans out there? Okay, so three of you will understand what I'm talking about. Well, it's this really interesting podcast. And I remember talking to a guy that doesn't know the Lord. And uh, we started talking, and we realized that we were both serial fans. And then uh, it wasn't that I knew that he listened to serial, so then I thought I would go listen to it too so that we could have a conversation. It's just that I was already trying to find out what do people enjoy. Obviously, you don't enjoy it, but this guy did. And we were able to have a conversation. And then he says to me, oh, you're a Christian. You probably only listen to classical music, right? And I said, well, I do enjoy classical music, but I like a variety of music. And in fact, some of the same music that he enjoyed and he listened to, we ended up having a conversation that ended up leading to spirituality. So just start, by, like Paul, by being interesting. Enjoy the culture that we live in. And then it's okay for us to enjoy culture. If you read Ecclesiastes, there's all kinds of things about enjoying the fruit of your labor, enjoying the things that you've done. But don't just enjoy culture, just the good aspects of it, I'm saying, not the sinful aspects. Find out what people enjoy. Don't just waste time in it, but use it to further God's kingdom. Let's look at 22, verse 22. The crowd, oh, I'm sorry, verse 22 of chapter 17. So Paul standing in the midst of, I'm sorry, 22, no, I was right. So Paul standing in the midst of the Agropolis said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you in every way are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from every man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As one, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we might not have to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Or images full by hands of art of imagination. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul gives us an illustration here of meeting our culture or meeting our people that we know that don't know Christ where they are at, where they are thinking. Paul observes their culture, and then he uses it. 
He says, I, I noticed that you have all kinds of idols. And, many, and I even noticed one of the idols that is to the unknown God. Now that's pretty interesting. Uh, Cosper, Dr. Cosper says this about secularism. The world that we live in is not all godless and atheist, but people with religious affiliations that are less firm and more fluid. So here Paul is saying, he's not talking to atheists, but people who have the wrong understanding about God. And he beautifully takes this thing of the unknown God and makes it about the one true God. Now what was this? Why did they have this unknown God? Well, a couple hundred years before this, there was a pandemic in Athens. And what happened was there was a really smart philosopher who came along and he told the people, let's release all kinds of sheep into the city of Athens. And wherever the sheep lies down, we will slaughter that sheep and make it a sacrifice to the temple, the, the nearest temple that is close by. And so what they would do is when a sheep would lie down, they'd kill it and they would dedicate it to the nearest temple. Well, sometimes though, they would lay down and they weren't near a temple and they would slaughter it and they would say, well, the sheep must know about a temple or a God that we don't know about. Hence came their idea of the unknown God. So he takes this unknown God and he says, the God that you don't know about really is the one true God. And I think for so many of us, this is what we're doing. We are helping people who have, and in the Midwest culture that we live in, most people have some kind of background in, in some kind of religious form or have an understanding of it in some way. But they have a wrong or incorrect understanding of it. So what we're doing is helping people understand what the God of the Bible is all about. And I, I see that happening. I was riding with our, our bus driver to camp last year, and there was a time where it was just he and I in the bus after we had dropped all the kids off, and we were riding around doing some things, and his name was Lowell. And Lowell was part of a, a liberal uh, Presbyterian church, and he told me about all the things that he was involved in told me about how he was on the missions committee and all the neat things that they were doing. And I just asked him, I said, hey, Lowell, what do you think, though, it takes for someone to have their sins forgiven and be made right with God? This is a guy that's actively involved in his church. And he said, well, I just think you really give your best. That was his answer. And I was able to talk to him and present the gospel to him of what it, it really meant to have your sins forgiven through faith alone. This is what the, the culture that we are working in. But what's so neat what Paul does here in verse 28, he says, In him we live, move, and we have our being. You know what Paul does there? He's actually quoting the guy who's told them to send the sheep into the city hundreds of years earlier. This is what he's saying about Zeus. He's saying, in Zeus, this is what we have in him. We live, move, and we find our being. And so he was using where they were at, what they were familiar with. And then he quotes then even one of their, of their poets of that day that they all were very familiar with, saying, for we are indeed his offspring. And he, then he applies that to Jesus and he calls them all. He says, this, there, is, there is actually one God. It's the one that you don't know about. And he has a judge, his son named Jesus. And he's risen from the, from the grave. And he's calling all people to repent. 
He was meeting them where they're already thinking and where they're at. Now, how does that work for us? Is it okay to quote our culture? Yeah, when we're sharing the gospel. That's where people already are and what they're already thinking. So if you're speaking to a group of high school students, maybe you say something like, live for today, plan for tomorrow, and party tonight. One of our great philosophers, Drake. Not Drake University, he's a, he's a rap artist. Start, and, but start thinking about where people are, where they're already at. And you don't have to be brilliant to do this. And you don't have to be young. I mean, look at Chuck, right? Uh, he's reaching, uh, he's got a swarm of young people following him, right? But you know what? You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be versed in the latest things. Do you know what Paul says about how you stand out in a culture that is crooked and perverse? Look at Philippians chapter 2. Do all these things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among which you shine as lights. Now, it might be easier to be brilliant than to do what this verse says. But Paul says, how do you shine as lights in the world? By not grumbling and questioning everything. I mean, think about this. People you know, I mean, that's, that's what we do, isn't it? We grumble, we complain, we question. And Paul is saying, how do you reach a world that doesn't know Jesus? Is your intention about not grumbling and complaining and questioning? And people go, what's wrong, what's wrong with you? You don't have to be a genius or know everything. You just need to live like Christ and then be ready to give the answer for the hope when people say, what's this hope that you have within you that you're doing these things? So what was the result here in Athens? Let's look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were a guy I can't name and another lady and others who were with them. So what was the response? Some mocked him. Some said, that's ridiculous, we don't believe that, but yet others believed. That's always going to be the result when we face culture. Some will mock you and say, that's ridiculous, I'm not following that, yet others who God has appointed to salvation will believe. So the gospel, as one has said, the gospel must be fitted, not altered, to a particular people, times, and circumstances. Do you notice what Paul does? He doesn't go in. His normal tradition was to go into the synagogue and teach from the scriptures and convert Jews. He doesn't do that with the men of Athens. He uses a different method because that's where they were. And so he didn't water down his message, but he changed his method. And there's a huge temptation right now for all of us in this culture to change our message, to make it more tolerant to just change a couple of things to be more uh, acceptable to the world around us well that's erasing the gospel from our equation of a healthy church and a healthy individual the church plus culture minus the gospel equals liberalism 
If you dumb down your message or compromise, the culture will probably accept you, but they will remain unconverted. If you lose the gospel, we lose Christianity and we're just a social club. People will be won by truth, not compromise. As Russell Moore points out, he says this, where are all the liberal church planting movements? Why, aren't, why isn't the Unitarian Church and other liberal denominations planting churches like crazy? Because those who will become disciples of Christ need the whole message of Christ. That's what people want. The culture will accept you, but they're not going to join you. They're not going to become Christians and become converted. People will be won by truth, not compromise. Just as Paul did. Well, let's transition. Let's transition to the subculture of church and practices. Uh, there are so many things that can be said about church and the way that we live, what is acceptable, the behaviors, the dress of our church that we're involved in. And uh, I try to just narrow it down to one thing. Uh, but God tells us many ways that we are to conduct ourselves in the church and how we're to conduct ourselves personally. But I want us to think about the danger of the circles that we're coming out of, the history that we are, have been a part of, of losing sight of the culture. Where people are no longer, uh, we're no longer reaching out and finding people. I mean, any church or person that reaches out uh, it, it stops reaching out and becomes only about theology and about the brothers. And so gospel plus church minus culture equals fundamentalism. And I tell that story about Lowell, the bus driver, who did have a, didn't have an understanding about salvation by grace through faith alone. And it makes us sad. It breaks our hearts, doesn't it? But yet we can be totally works-based in our own lives, in our own culture. Not for our salvation. No, we would never say that. Salvation is not by works. But in our sanctification, I believe, our growth, we can default to works very quickly. And that happened in Scripture, too. If you look at the church in Galatia, Paul, just moments after they were converted, writes to him and says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you're now being perfected by the flesh. Uh, we were in my cell group uh, last Tuesday night, and we were discussing the message from the week before, talking about how Cain was religious but not righteous. And we all admitted that there have been times that we have gone to church for the wrong reasons, without our heart being in it, not wanting to be there at all, but in our minds thinking, this is what I'm supposed to do as a Christian, and God is pleased with me if I just participate. You know, I think we give um, Catholics a hard time for saying they have no heart. And yeah, they're messed up in their theology. But I think we can be very much the same way in not having a, a heart that wants to follow God and just obeying uh, without putting our hearts into it. We're guilty of the same things. And we add rules just for the sake of simply adding rules to our culture. Um, and I, I believe what we start to do is we start to think that we can add Jesus points to our 
relationship with God. Here's what I mean by that, right? Salvation, we are able now to be in the game, the game of Jesus. That's, that's a bad phrase. That's not what I meant. But we have this, this thing of now I'm a part of the Christian life through faith, but now as I do things, I score Jesus points, right? And I start to get more and more points in my relationship with God. And I do, I, I read my Bible, and I get some extra points from God. And I start to go up in my point scale, and when I don't do certain things, my points go down. So salvation gets you into the game, but keeping the rules is what keeps you in it and keeps you going. Brad Bigney, who we all know, have asked this question last weekend at ACBC. Have we confused regulations with relationship? Have we confused regulations with relationship? Our Bible reading, our prayer, our worship, fasting, journaling, evangelism, giving. Those are all good things, right? Those should all be a part of the Christian life. But they become bad when we try to bring them as acceptance before God. We think that as we're doing these things, we would never actually say these things, but we think in our minds, but because we're participating in these things, that God accepts us more. And what we fail to realize is what Titus 2, 11 and 12 tells us that for by grace has appeared bringing salvation to all people. Now, if you notice that grace doesn't go away, but it trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So grace saves us, and it also trains us and teaches us to grow. So we read our Bibles, not just to read it, but to soak in it, to know God and to grow in his grace. But there is a danger that we can live based upon the rules, as I've already mentioned. And if we live this way, thinking these good things that we add to our lives that aren't even really found in Scripture are somehow making us better with God. And it's what I call rules that don't require grace. Here's what I mean by that. Rules that don't requi require grace. So let's say that you say uh, rap music is wrong. I don't listen to it, Christian or non. I don't go to the movies. And if I'm a guy, I don't grow my hair out long. Uh, I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to dance. And I'm certainly not watching CNN, right? <laughs> the reason I call these rules that don't require grace is because the people who make these rules that add these rules don't actually struggle with them and here's what i mean let's say that you believe that rap music is wrong and that's a conviction of yours that's fine but here you if you say that and you say therefore i'm not going to listen to it that's not actually a struggle for you to listen to rap music is it i mean if you believe it's wrong you don't get in the car and look at the dials and go Oh, man, I really feel like listening to rap right now. Them hip-hop beats are calling to me, right? It's not a sincere struggle. We don't need grace to keep those. And it's never actually commands that are found in Scripture, because Scripture never lets us off that easy. The commands in Scripture always require grace for us to keep them. You think about Matthew 5, 28, where Jesus says, you look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery in your heart. Paul tells us, be angry and do not 
sin. We're told, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. We're told to not love the world and do not covet. Now, these commands are impossible for us to keep in our own strength. Am I right? They are impossible. And even with the Holy Spirit, we still will not keep these fully throughout our entire life. How many of you worried this week? All right. How many of you uh, wanted something else that someone else had this week? Okay, very good. How many of you uh, were angry, but it, it led to sin? Okay, good, all right. So all of us here, we all say, we struggle with all these things, and they require grace. See, Jesus doesn't allow us to just, that's the whole point, is that when we sin, it constantly pushes us to see our need for a Savior. We always fall short when we're following the commands of Scripture, but if we're following our own mad man, excuse me, man-made plans, we don't need grace. We become our own saviors. And we don't need Jesus anymore. We take him out of the equation. And we think, well, I, I'm not listening to rap. I'm not going to movies. I'm not growing my hair out long. Uh, therefore, I'm not using bad language. Therefore, I'm a godly person. And we convince ourselves into thinking this way. And the results are we give ourselves a false sense of godliness. And we start to look at these rules that we've made and that we're keeping them or we're not breaking them. And we think, look, I'm a godly person. And the next generation, it either results in creating a bunch of Pharisees who just follow the rules and think that this is what the Christian life is boiled down to, or it leads to a generation of rebellion. I was at a, a camp when I was in college, and I traveled around to different camps with a college team, and I was at one particular camp counseling, and I had a whole group of, of uh, high school guys that were given to me that week, and a speaker uh, spoke on a Friday night. And he spoke um, his main message, the one that he was calling everybody to. This is the message of response. And he pulled out a contract and he said, I want everybody to come up here, take one of these contracts and take it back to your room and you sign it and have your counselor sign it. And what the contract was, was I will never smoke and I will never drink. Now, I'm not advocating either one of those things, okay? Please hear me on this. Bible's clear about drunkenness, and I'm not advocating any of these things. But I remember sitting there as the one kid after another in my cabin brought me over this contract that he had signed, and he was smiling from ear to ear. And he said, please be my witness and sign this. And I remember sitting there as a young college student, and there was something inside of me thinking, this doesn't feel right. Is this what we boiled Christianity down to is not doing a couple of things, and this is what godliness is. And I remember going to sleep that night. I, didn't, I, I just didn't know where I was, but something didn't feel like this is what I wanted, this is what Christianity was all about. And I, I think from time to time, if I could go back to that moment and sitting on that bed with those 15 or so high school guys that were in that cabin, 
And what I would say, if I could do it over again, and say, listen, guys, if, if God has given you a conviction of these things, follow them. But there's so much more than this. How about we sign some contracts that say, I am going to follow God with every portion of my being. I'm going to strive after Christ with all that I have. And I'm going to let the Bible tell me what is sinful. And I'm going to follow those and I'm going to mess up. But I know that that's why Jesus came and he perfectly kept all the rules where I didn't. And he kept them all so that by believing in him, I have gained his perfect obedience. And where I failed, he died for my sins and he rose again. And I want to follow and serve this king and live the way that his, the Bible has clearly told me to. Let's sign those contracts. We need to sift out what is cultural for what is biblical. We need to sift out what is cultural and find what is truly biblical. Living by God's standards and not our own. So what is the overall pursuit of culture? What is it that every culture is searching for? What is it looking for? Well, I believe in a, in a reading through scripture that every culture and every individual is looking for self-validation. I'm important. The people that I'm around view me as important. My life man matters, and I am valuable. One of my favorite movies is Rocky, except for Rocky V. All right, <laughs> put that out there. And there's a scene in Ro the first Rocky that is about Rocky, and he's going to fight for the championship belt, Apollo Creed. And he's sitting there with Adrian the night before, and he's perplexed, he's scared, and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And he explains to her, I don't even want to win. I just want to go the distance. She says, well, well, why that? She says, he says, because nobody's ever gone the, the distance with Apollo. I want to go all 12 rounds and still be standing there when it's all done. He says, then if I can go the distance with him, I'll know that I'm not a bum. I think deep down every human being has that desire to answer that question that I'm not a bum, that I'm valuable, that I'm worth it. I want to show you this clip from uh, Jim Carrey. And just listen to what he says here, and I think we'll echo the heart of, of culture. Philippians 3, verses 3 through 6. Did you catch that? Then I would be enough. Isn't that what everyone's looking for? I mean, look at this. Here is Paul's resume. As he's speaking about searching for his own righteousness, his own right standing. He's speaking about all the things that he's accomplished in his past life. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks, thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He's got his finger out, his countenance stuff, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
All right, so he lays down, here's my resume of all these things that give me value. Look, I am a valuable person. Well, how do we change culture? By changing people with the gospel. Let's show them that self-validation comes from losing our list and gaining Christ. That's why Paul responds after all this. He says in the following verses, Indeed, I count everything loss. That word loss is the, means a shipwreck, with a, a ship traveling with a treasure that goes to the bottom of the sea. It's completely lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. So our core value states this worship, God alone rules my world. So I'll, put, I'll point to him in everything I do. So it's giving up our self-autonomy and acknowledging that I don't rule the world. God does. And if I want to find validation, if I want to find what I'm looking for, my life must be centered on Christ and point to him that he is in control, that he is Lord, that he is the only one that can take my sins away. It's the blood of Jesus that washes away sins, not my own doing. And it's the blood of Jesus that keeps me saved, not my own doing. Well, as we live in the culture, let us shine as lights.